So the reading is from Luke chapter 1, verses 5 to 38. In the time of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah, who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife, Elizabeth, was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of, of God, observing all the Lord's commandments and regulations blamelessly. But they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well on in years. Once, when Zechariah's division was on duty, and he was serving as priest before God, he was chosen by lot, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And when the time for the burning of incense came, all the assembled worshippers were praying outside. Then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. Your prayer has been heard. Your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you are to give him the name John. He will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He is never to take wine or other fermented drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit even from birth. Many of the people of Israel will he bring back to the Lord their God, and he will go on before the Lord in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the righteous to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah asked the angel, How can I be sure of this? I am an old man, and my wife is well on in years. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I have been sent to speak to you and to tell you this good news. And now you will be silent and not able to speak until the day this happens, because you did not believe my words which will come true at their proper time. Meanwhile, the people were waiting for Zechariah and wondering why he stayed so long in the temple. When he came out, he could not speak to them. They realized he had seen a vision in the temple, for he kept making signs to them, but remained unable to speak. When his time of service was completed, he returned home. After this, his wife Elizabeth became pregnant and for five months remained in seclusion. The Lord has done this for me, she said. In these days he has shown his favor and taken away my disgrace among the people. In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will be with child and give birth to a son, and you are to give him the name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? 
The angel answered, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age, and she, who was said to be barren, is in her sixth month. For nothing is impossible with God. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. Well, good morning again, everyone. Let me uh, thank you, Kevin, for leading the service so far, for musicians, and to, to Benny for reading, and of course to Ailey and to Libby for such an encouraging time together this morning. We're going to spend uh, some time thinking about the passage that Benny's just read for us uh, from Luke chapter 1. If you do have a Bible, uh, I'd encourage you to have that open in front of you over the course of the next few minutes. Uh, but before we, 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 we get into that text, let me ask for God's help of us. Let's pray together. <clears throat> The psalmist writes, open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. We ask this morning, our speaking God, that through your word being read and preached and reflected on, you would please, by your Holy Spirit, be at work in each of us to open our eyes. We ask these things in your precious name. Amen. Uh, amen. Well, let, let me begin, uh, as I occasionally do, with a question for each of you. Uh, how do you decide whether to take someone at their word or not? How do you decide whether to take someone at their word or not? We each have to make that kind of decision quite often in day-to-day life. might not even notice we're doing it, but we are doing it, whether to believe someone, to believe what they're telling us, or to disbelieve them. It might be at a relatively mundane level, whether that word might have come to us from a colleague who's promised us the report by the end of the week, will you believe them or not? Or it might be a more serious thing from the friend or family member who tells you that they'll never touch a drop again, or from the medical professional who assures you that your symptoms are nothing to worry about. How do you decide whether to believe them or not? What kinds of factors do you take into account? You might want to give some thought to the kind of person whose word it is, mightn't you? Perhaps they aren't all that reliable. If the words are coming from a salesman, for example, who's got a reputation as being a bit of a, a slippery character, a bit of a modern day Dell boy, you might be cautious about believing them. More cautious than if, for example, the same words were coming from a trusted friend or family member. Or maybe you want to take into account any evidence that might support their claim. If the doctor, for example, tells you not to worry about your symptoms and has first carried out lots of tests before reaching that conclusion, well, you might be more prone to believing them, mightn't you? We each consider lots of different factors when making that kind of judgment call on whether to take someone at their word or not. And uh, this morning... We're each going to be asked to make just such a judgment call about whether we will take someone at his word or not. Only this morning we're not dealing with a salesman or a doctor or a colleague, but with the God of the universe. Will we take him at his word? 
This is our second week in this Advent series, thinking about the first two chapters in Luke's account of Jesus' life. And last week, if you were here, we began by thinking about Luke's purpose statement. That's how he begins his whole account. He he sets out very clearly his whole reason for writing at all. He tells us, chapter 1, verse 4, that he wants to give his readers certainty to persuade them of truths about Jesus Christ. It seems likely that there was a lot of information swirling around about Jesus in the first century world. And Luke wants to give his readers certainty to help them believe the right thing and know that they really can believe it. And it certainty is the order of the day for what comes next in Luke's account. He tells us this morning in our passage about two announcements. Announcements that babies are on the way. And that might not sound like especially massive news, a birth announcement, because babies are born every day. There's, in fact, one born every minute, it seems. Were it not for the contexts of both of those births? Just notice that with me. Firstly, chapter 1, verse 7, about the first birth announcement. They had no child because Elizabeth was barren, and both were advanced in years. This first couple, who are called Zechariah and Elizabeth, they are quite old. And Zechariah, sorry, rather Elizabeth, is to use Luke's words, barren. She's been unable to have children. Which makes them not the ideal candidates for this particular promise, you might think. Well, the second promise comes to a couple in, in indifferent, but no less complicated circumstances. Again, just look on with me to chapter 1, verse 26. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph. So if for the first couple having children seems quite difficult, well, for the second couple, it's a biological impossibility because Mary is a virgin. Two contexts into which the promise of a child is is pretty much impossible, humanly speaking. And that means that the recipients of both of those promises have to make a judgment call, don't they? To decide whether they will take this word at face value or whether they'll dismiss it. And each of us are going to be asked that same question this morning too. Will we take God at his word? And particularly at his word about these children or not? Now, not whether we'll believe that they're going to be born or not, because we know that they were, with the benefit of hindsight. John was born, Jesus was born. But we might well have to decide whether we trust all that was promised about them before they were born. Whether they really were who God said they were, whether they achieved what he said they came to achieve. Will we take God at his word about these children or not. That's our key idea this morning. And to see how that idea works itself out through both of these birth announcements, we're just going to walk through each one in turn over the next few minutes. We'll do that under the first heading, uh, birth notice number one, the gracious announcement. Now, as we step into the narrative in Luke's account, we're introduced to a man named Zechariah. We're told that he is a priest, verse five, and that he and his wife Elizabeth are an all-round righteous couple, verse six. That doesn't mean that they were perfect, But it means that they were faithful in following what God had asked them to do. We meet Zechariah, it seems, at a pretty important moment in his career. Look on with me to verse 9. According to the custom of the priesthood, Zechariah was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. 
Now, a priest like Zechariah was only going to be asked to, to, to officiate at this particular ceremony in the temple once in his life. This is Zechariah's cup final, if you like. He's expecting it to be a very significant day. But perhaps not for the reasons it turns out to be significant. As he places incense on the altar, verse 11, an angel appears. And just worth noticing, Zechariah reacts exactly as you would expect him to react. He isn't expecting to see an angel there. Neither would you or I be, I guess. And so he reacts as you would expect. Verse 12, he is terrified. Now, in response to his fright, the angel comforts Zechariah and makes a pretty amazing promise. Verse 13. Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son and you shall call his name John. The angel promises Zechariah a son. And without knowing anything else about that son, we already know that that's an amazing promise. We've already been told, remember, that he and his wife are getting older, that Elizabeth has been unable to have children. And so right out of the gate, Gabriel's already stretching the bounds of believability. But he only takes things further still as we progress. So we often try now, don't we, to give children freedom to decide what they want to be or what career they want to have when they grow older, whether a vet or a musician or a teacher or an astronaut, to reach their own conclusions. Gabriel says that this child would have no such freedom. He'll be a God-given child with a very particular job description. Verse 16. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. He'll go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers to the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. Now, um, it feels like a lifetime ago since uh, the king's coronation, doesn't it? I had to remind myself recently that it did actually happen this year. It did happen this year. That might come as a surprise to you too. But you might remember casting your back to when it was warmer and sunnier to to, to earlier this year when uh, the footage of coronation processions around London was everywhere. And you could see images of the bejeweled carriage carrying King Charles himself or of the hundreds of thousands of people lining the streets to see him. But helping to make sure they did see him was Brigade Major Lieutenant Colonel James Shaw. I'm guessing uh, most of us haven't heard of him before, but he played a key role in the whole coronation process. See, he was right at the head of the procession. He was about a mile in front of the royal carriage, and his arrival signaled to all the onlooking crowds that Charles was on his way. Shaw was, if you like, a forerunner. He was preparing people for the arrival of the king. And that's what Gabriel says this child would do. That is his job. He will prepare the way for the child. And that preparation isn't just so that the crowds don't miss the king when he came. It's so they knew how to respond to him when he did. Again, just read verse 16 with me again. He will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. Now that phrase, the children of Israel here, it's another way of talking about God's people. And if this child is going to be turning people to God, 
Well, the inference is that those people had otherwise been turned away from God. Otherwise, it wouldn't have been necessary for John to turn people back, would it? And you see, that locates this child, this John, to come, not only in the story of God's people, the children of Israel, but it locates him in the grand sweep of all of human history. You see, the story of humanity since, since Adam and Eve is that every one of us have turned away, have ignored God, have made ourselves kings and queens of our own lives. Now, I'm well aware that it might not feel at all like that to all of us. You might imagine that you and God, if there really is a God, are on, on pretty good terms as it happens. The Bible says that he sees things rather differently. That by refusing to acknowledge him, that by living with God as, as a sort of footnote in our own lives, if that, well, we've each turned away from him. And yet ever since things went off the rails... God promised that he would send someone to make that right again. To make it possible for people to be brought back to God, to relate to him rightly. We'll think in a moment or two about who that person was. But for now, Gabriel's saying that John is paving the way for his coming. Would make sure that people are ready for him when he arrives. And it's just worth saying that that promise isn't coming out of the blue to Zechariah. You see, hundreds of years earlier, prophets, multiple prophets, people like Malachi and Daniel in the Old Testament, they had said that this very thing would happen. There would be a forerunner, someone to prepare the way for God's coming king, his rescuer. And so for Zechariah, this really is a gracious announcement of an extraordinary, God-given, God-serving child. And it's a promise that isn't being made to just anyone Because Zechariah, remember, was a faithful Jew. He was a priest. He was literally standing in God's temple as the angel appears. The same temple where God had promised to dwell with his people. It is inconceivable that he wouldn't have known about God's promise to send a herald, another Elijah, for this long-promised king. And all of that means that on hearing this, this promise to him, Zechariah should be delighted, should be excited. This announcement should evoke a joyful, faith-filled response. But as it transpires, Zechariah's response is anything but joyful and faith-filled. Read with me again, verse 18. Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. Zechariah doesn't believe that it will happen. And you might understand why. Partly, of course, because what's being promised to him is extraordinary. That is an amazing thing that is being promised. And so if it was coming from an unreliable source, from a renowned fraudster, for example, someone who promised to deal with with Elizabeth's fertility only if they paid him enough money, you might understand why, why, why he'd be a bit anxious about it, a bit unsettled by it, dismiss it, unfair, untrue. But that isn't where the promise is coming from. Verse 19, the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God, and I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Can you see this announcement isn't coming from a fraudster? It isn't speculative. It isn't manipulative. 
It was coming direct from God's messenger. Gabriel says that he's relaying a message right from God's presence directly to Zechariah. He's a giant, giant shining angel appearing to him in the temple. And so to disbelieve that message, well, it's to disbelieve God himself. And that is a big deal, isn't it? And actually, we don't have to infer that it's a big deal. We know it's a big deal because of what happens to Zechariah next. Verse 20. Behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. Zechariah is, is, is struck, unable to speak. There's almost a temporary sort of discipline or, or judgment on Zechariah. Why? Well, because he doesn't believe God's promise. He will not take God at his word. And that is meant, I think, to hold a bit of a mirror up to each one of us, actually, to make us consider whether we might ever be doing the same thing. Now, we don't come at God's word in exactly the same way as Zechariah did, partly because we don't receive it from a giant shining angel, but partly because we know that John has come already. That's historical for us. We know that he did precede Jesus. Again, that's historical for us. Our problem isn't necessarily with whether this child could be born, but it may well be with his job description, with what the child came to do, with the message he came to bring, that we need to be turned back to God. See, it isn't at all uncommon in our culture to think that that God is generally a, a pretty benevolent sort of figure. That he doesn't really mind how we behave as long as we don't do anything too bad. Of course, there are certain people who are beyond the pale, but so long as you don't go to that level, then he'll be fine with me. That isn't the case at all. All of us have turned away from him. All of us have gone our own way instead, and that is a serious problem. And what I want you to see this morning is that I'm not asking you to take my word for that. Rather, Luke is asking you to take God's word for that. God himself says that your relationship with him is on the rocks. That you need to be brought back from that point. And that you can't do that bringing back yourself. And so the question is, will you believe him? Will you take him at his word? That's our first announcement this morning, the coming of a herald of John the Baptist preparing the way for God's rescuer. Now, I wonder if you've ever played a game of Spot the Difference before. We play it quite often in our house with the children, I should say, Fiona and I tend not to, to, to play Spot the Difference much on our own. The idea behind the game, if you've never played before, is that you're given two pictures to compare and, as the title suggests, to spot the differences. And this might sound like a very, very simple thing to say, but I'm quite happy saying simple things. What makes a spot the difference worth playing is when the two pictures are relatively similar to one another. You see, if someone hands you two completely different pictures, a, a picture of a farmyard scene on the one hand and a picture of an orange on the other hand, it's quite easy to spot the differences between them. But if they're both a picture of a farmyard, if they're both a picture of an orange then each of the differences, the discrepancies between them are, well, they're significant, aren't they? They're almost magnified. And in Luke chapter 1, Luke presents us as his readers with a spot the difference. 
he lines up these two birth announcements right next to each other. And I wonder if, as we read them a few minutes ago, you spotted quite how similar they are. We've already touched on the unlikeliness of the pregnancy, one because of old age, the other because the pregnant woman is a virgin. In both instances, the the angel Gabriel is the one who announces the coming of this child. In both cases, the recipient of that announcement receives it by being troubled. They're both told what name to give to the child when he arrives. They're both told that the child will be great. Can you see they're very closely aligned with one another, these two announcements? And that means that the differences between them are meant to stand out to us, I think. They're being highlighted, double underlined for us. And two such differences in particular are in mind. The first of which is the nature of the baby to come. We've seen that John was going to be an extraordinary child who would would serve God in a remarkable way. Well, this second child would be two. But he would be extraordinary in a different way. Just notice that with me. Read verse 31 again with me, if you would. Gabriel says to Mary, Behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son and shall call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give to him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and of his kingdom there will be no end. See, the the, the baby being promised to Mary isn't preparing the way for someone else to come. He isn't a herald. No, this baby is someone else to come. He is God's long-awaited, forever king. Did you notice that? Of his kingdom, says Gabriel, there will be no end. And it's just worth clocking. That's a big part of why Christmas really matters. The arrival of Jesus, of the baby in the manger, it isn't like the arrival of any other arrival. We're quite familiar with lots of the nativity texts, I guess, most of us. And so the significance of it might wash over us. What we're reading of is the arrival of God's worldwide, forever king. That's the first difference between these two baby announcements, the nature of the baby from the herald to the king. But the second difference flows from the first. It is the response of the recipients to that news. Remember that the the punchline, if you like, the climax to the birth announcement to Zechariah was his skepticism. He didn't think it would really happen. And on first reading, Mary's immediate response might sound quite similar to Zechariah's. Just clock with me again, verse 34, that Mary said to the angel, how will this be? since I'm a virgin. Now that might sound to us like an expression of doubt, not too dissimilar to Zechariah's. But Gabriel doesn't seem to see it like that. He seems to think of it as a genuine question about mechanics, if you like. As much as to say, well, how's that going to work, Gabriel? And we know that Gabriel sees it like that because once he's explained the process to her, notice what she says, verse 38. Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Mary believes. And again, I think that's intended to hold a bit of a mirror up to us this morning. See, you might right now be thinking that if you were Mary, if a big angel appeared to you out of nowhere, then you might pay attention to what they said to you. You might believe it as she did. But given that you haven't seen a giant angel like Mary did, how are you meant to take any of this seriously? I mean, a human being, being God's forever king, 
that was born into obscurity in the first century Middle East. Really? I'm meant to believe that. Well, that's why Luke's spot the difference is quite so helpful for us, I think. Because the decision that Zechariah had to make and that Mary had to make, in one sense, was very, very similar indeed. It wasn't ultimately about whether the messenger looked or sounded particularly believable themselves. Otherwise, they would both have reached the same conclusion because notice, they both met with the same messenger. The decision they had to make was whether they would take God at his word. And so too do we. Will we take God at his word? Now, as I say that, I am aware that it might sound as though I'm encouraging you to ignore the evidence and to just close your eyes and have faith and believe. That isn't the sense of of what I'm saying to you, nor is it what Luke is saying to you. Remember, his objective is to give certainty, and to give you certainty, he wrote a historical account based on eyewitness evidence. He made that plain in his introduction. So you see, for us, the scriptures and the evidence, they're one and the same thing. And yet at the same time, they're also God's words to us. And each of us has to decide whether we're going to believe them or not. Perhaps you've been thinking about the Christian faith for a while. But you're unwilling to take that leap because you feel you need more evidence before you can be sure of it. If that is you, can I just say that I'm really pleased you're willing to wrestle with the evidence. That is a good impulse. But Luke's point, I think, is that you're already holding that evidence in your hands right now. God might not have announced himself to you through an angel, but he has done through the words of the scriptures. He's told you that he came as a rescuer to turn you back to himself as a king, your king. And so the question comes, will you take him at his word? Will you follow him? Perhaps instead, though, your problem isn't so much with the the sort of nature of the evidence on offer, the the historical accounts. It's with the, the, the content of those accounts. I mean, the God of the universe being born in human flesh just feels quite unlikely. Being born to a virgin, again, that's very difficult for us to get our heads around. Never mind dying and rising again. That's impossible. We know it's impossible, don't we? And in one sense, it is impossible. But interestingly, Luke presumes that his readers will know that. Mary knew that. That's why she asks that question. How will this be? She's fully aware that a virgin birth is impossible, that that just isn't how human biology works. And yet that doesn't prevent her from believing. Why? Verse 37. For nothing will be impossible with God. Now again, that might sound like a naive or a gullible thing to say, but let me just put it to you that it's an entirely logical thing to say. Of course, virgins don't get pregnant. That isn't how biology works. But ask yourself, who created biology in the first place? Whose idea was it that babies would arrive by being born and not delivered by storks? It was God, wasn't it? The same God who's making this promise to Mary. Of course he can work outside of the principles he created if he chooses to, can't he? Now you may well be unsure about what to make of all of that, whether you will take God at his word. If that is you, can I please encourage you to at least pay close attention to what that word actually says and not what you imagine it says? 
to carefully and to thoughtfully read the Bible for yourself. And if you've never read it before, or you aren't sure where to start, well, in the new year, we as a church family are running a course called Hope Explored. There will be three sessions on consecutive Monday evenings in January, considering the hope and the message of the Christian faith from the primary texts. We'll have the Bible open in front of us, and we'll be talking about it together. We would absolutely love it if you came to that. This is my invitation to you. There are flyers for the course downstairs if you'd like to know more, or you can speak to me this morning if that would be helpful. Bring your questions, bring your objections even, and we'll very gladly get those out onto the table and chat through them together. Perhaps though you have already taken God at his word, maybe you're a convinced Christian, there are a couple of brief lines of application to you too. Firstly, a confirmation of the decision you've already made. You can have certainty about what you believe. See, it might not always feel like it as we look at the world around us, as we experience life ourselves, but God's forever king has come. And not only that, in his first coming, he promised that one day he'd come again. And that as he does, every knee will bow before him. And so you can take him at his word. That's one implication of Luke chapter 1, the certainty of what you already believe. And the second follows on from that certainty. I wonder if you followed the conclusion that Mary draws at the end of the birth announcement to her. Verse 38, Mary said, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. Now, on one view, that might sound like she's being quite passive, as though she's effectively saying, well, okay, sarah, sarah, whatever it will be, will be. Let it happen to me if you say it's going to happen. That isn't the sense of what she's saying at all, though. She isn't being passive. She's being submissive. She's completely submitting herself to God's purpose for her. She counts herself as a servant of this coming king. And again, I just want you to follow very briefly the logic of that. That really does make sense. Growing in certainty about who he is and about what he's come to do in the world. Well, it will change how you then behave, won't it? And if you don't believe me, well, then just think on the powerful illustration we've seen of that this morning in Libya and Ailey. They've been convinced that what Jesus says about himself and what Jesus says about them and about their need of him is absolutely true. And that conviction hasn't just remained an intellectual kind of truth for them. They've submitted themselves to this king by publicly identifying with him this morning. Taking God at his word has convinced them to follow him. Let me give you another example of what that might look like. One I saw again just this week. Someone who knew that following this Jesus, that taking him at his word and submitting their life to him was going to be personally a very costly thing to do. Would probably be a very painful thing indeed. And yet still chose to follow him. Now what was that Christian doing in that moment? Well, they might not have been using the words, but with their life they were saying, Behold, I am the servant of the Lord. Let it be to me according to your word. I'm convinced that I can take you at your word, Lord. I can trust you. And so I'm going to put my money where my mouth is. I'm going to submit my life to you, even when that feels like a very costly thing to do. Now, Christmas saw the arrival of an extraordinary, God-given, God-serving child, God's forever king. 
Luke would have us see that we can take him at his word. And his question, God's question, I think, for each of us this morning is, will you do that? Let's pray and ask him for his help as we close. Let's pray. Our God and Father, we come before you this morning and praise you for your extraordinary kindness to us in sending Jesus, your forever king, of sending John to make sure that not only we didn't miss him, but we're prepared for him to turn back to you in faith, rescuing rebels like us back to yourself. Help us, please, to appreciate that and to enjoy that good news this morning, to be increasingly certain of the good news of the Lord Jesus. And we ask that even today, someone would take you at your word, perhaps for the very first time, would bow the knee before you and ask for your forgiveness, and so receive the extraordinary mercy of Jesus, your forever King. We ask all of these things in his name and for his sake. Amen.